they were not, in Deuteronomy, going to trust the God of the promise. They were not going to yield to him by faith and be justified. And so Paul is using this section of Deuteronomy brilliantly. Notice in these verses in Romans that he's revealing Christ. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, if you haven't learned this by now, I am a bit of a prankster. Uh, I have had antics throughout the years that have gotten me into trouble. And uh, when I was growing up, there were a few things that I would kind of pull, some little pranks I would pull on my family. So you guys remember back in the day when you actually had a telephone in the home that was connected to the wall? Anybody remember that? Both of you? Uh, and I, would, I, would, I learned that if you put peanut butter on the earpiece, uh, when your parents pick up the phone to answer it, they're going to be kind of smudged with peanut butter. So I did that little trick. Uh, we can't do that today, of course. Put peanut butter on the iPhone. It's not going to work. Uh, I, I learned to put plastic wrap over the toilet seat and uh, got my mom with that one. A lot of trouble for that. Um, put X-Lax in my dad's Coke, his two liter of Coke. <laughs> and that really backfired. Um, and uh, so <laughs> that was his, co- literally backfired. Um, thank you for that. Um, and so as an adult, I've tried to put childish things behind me, but the struggle's real. <laughs> uh, these old habits die hard. And so one time I was with my kids at, I don't know if it was Target or a toy store, and so we're walking down the toy aisle, and we came to the one end cap where the little toys are there where you have to kind of activate the hand to make the doll kind of light up. And so I believe it was a Tickle Me Elmo. I don't know if any of you remember. Some of you were raised by him, but uh, I don't know if you remember that. Um, and, and as I'm walking by the end cap, there's 25 Tickle Me Elmos lined up. And I just, I just had this inspirational thought as I walked by. I was like, no one would, would think to do this except me. But I went and I, I activated every single Tickle Me Elmo on the shelf. So the whole shelf's shaking as you know, Elmo is, is laughing and going crazy. And um, you guys can guess what happened, right? As soon as I'm lighting up Elmo all over this end cap, someone was standing right behind me uh, to kind of show their disapproval the whole time. I was in a lot of trouble. And no, it was not the manager of the store. It was my wife, Jen. (laughs) And, And so I tell you that story because some people have this strange and unbiblical notion that we are like those robotic toys, that we just stand there like, you know, automatons, and we're waiting to be activated. And they may argue that there's no part that humans play in our salvation. To be sure, there's nothing we bring to the table except our sin. We've made that very clear through Romans. But they would argue we're completely passive, we're pre-programmed, and we're just waiting for God to squeeze our hand to make us alive. And this chapter in Romans reminds us that we do have a part to play. And and though our salvation completely depends upon God and not our works, we still must repent, believe, and confess the gospel. As we move from Romans chapter 9 to Romans chapter 10, we see Paul's overall theme of God's sovereign election, particularly through the case study of Israel. But now we see a big shift. A shift occurs, 
And many look at chapter 9 as God's dealing with Israel in the past, whereas chapter 11 is Israel's future, meaning that chapter 10 here references Israel's present. And at the present, the present state of Israel, what is their present state toward the mercies of Yahweh? It's rejection. It's a national rejection. But that rejection does not mean God is not still at work. And even in our own lives, you may have been tempted to think as we've learned the realities of God's sovereign mercy that you say, well, there's nothing I can do about this. God has it locked in. I'm not chosen, so I'm excluded. I mean, I really wanted to know Christ. I really wanted to pursue Christ. I wanted to receive the gospel, but there's nothing I can do about it because I'm not elect. Now, that view is what many people call hyper-Calvinism. And it has nothing to do with Calvin, and it has less to do with the Bible. It has a lot to do with being hyper and being wrong. Uh, most Calvinists reject hyper-Calvinism, by the way. They would reject that. We would say God is sovereign, but that doesn't make us passive. Here's what Christopher Ashe says in his commentary. He says, hyper-Calvinism is a distorted faith that says because God is sovereign, what will happen will happen, and there's nothing we can do about it. And he says, no, because God can open the hearts of men, Paul prays that he will. So if chapter 9 addresses God's perspective, chapter 10 seems to show us some concerns about us, about man. And so in our passage today, we're going to see the need to both understand the gospel as well as to receive and confess the gospel. Now, again, this doesn't happen by magic or automation. It happens, listen, when the Spirit of God illuminates the gospel to fallen hearts, regenerates us to spiritual life. And I would argue as we are made alive, we place our faith in Jesus for our salvation. We repent, we receive, we confess. Uh, Utley, Bob Utley says, election happens in the preaching of the cross, which explains how the classical defense of divine sovereignty, which we just studied, can be followed by the greatest missionary passage in the letters of Paul. We'll get a little bit of that today, a little bit next week. The highest mandate to preach the gospel is the knowledge that in doing so, God is faithful, carrying out his electing purpose in Christ. As we'll see next week, just because God is sovereign, that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to preach the good news. So today we're going to break verses 1 through 13 down into three sections. And if you're taking note, I hope you are, verses 1 through 4, we are going to see the righteousness of God, which we began a little bit last week. We're going to see the word of faith in verses 5 through 8, and we'll conclude with the Lord of all in verses 9 through 13. Look again with me at verse 1. Capture Paul's heart for his, his brothers. Look at this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is not that they would be condemned, because all men stand condemned already. Notice what his prayer is. His desire is that they may be saved. Paul says, I testify. I'll stand in a courtroom. I bear witness about a few things and goes into detail. Now, we, we saw last week in the last few verses of chapter 9 that Paul introduces a new train of thought. And, and he asked the question, Pastor Micah taught us last week, what shall we say then? In other words, what is our response to these things? And then Paul draws a parallel between two types of righteousness. There's one on one side and one on the other. One is God's righteousness, which is obtained by faith, and the other is our righteousness, which is attempted, I'll use that as a qualifier, attempted to be obtained by works of the law. 
You guys remember these words? These words precede the chapter 9 and 10 distinction. So just, just have your eyes go up a little bit to verse 30. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, you can look on the screen. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Paul is showing us two, if you would, types of righteousness. But notice that in chapter 10, verse 1, Paul continues to express his love and his care for the unsaved countrymen of Israel by desiring and praying for them to be saved. Paul has already pointed out on two separate occasions in the book of Romans all the advantages that the Jews have had by the mercies of God. And so I'm not going to recap those, but you can go back and read those uh, previously. But here he adds another one in verse 2. He says, here's another advantage they had. He says, it's zeal. So Paul says, I can attest. I can testify. In fact, from personal experience, I can attest that religious Jews are very zealous. They're very sincere in their beliefs. But listen, sincerity is not the, the qualifier for truth claims. Just because someone is sincere does not mean they are right or they are, uh, their beliefs are true. We would argue the 19 terrorists who hijacked four planes on the morning of September 11th, 2001, they were very sincere, weren't they? Sincere in their beliefs, sincere enough to die for what they believed. But their actions led to the murder of more than 3,000 people. Uh, even though at the core of their beliefs there was passion, there was zeal, there was sincerity, that what they were doing was fulfilling the will of their God. And so you can be very sincere in what you believe, but you can also be sincerely wrong. And so what were the problems with the Jews in Paul's day? He says there's zeal, but notice, he says, but it was not according to knowledge. And so there's four things that one commentator captured from these verses, and we'll put them on the screen for you. Four issues that they had. First was religious pride in verse 2. They had the zeal, but not according to knowledge. And so you begin to be puffed up in your zeal. Like, man, I'm a little more zealous than anyone around me. But they didn't only have that. They also had a spiritual blindness that Paul describes. They were self-righteous, and they had an unyielding stubbornness. You see, they may be zealous, but the, the zeal is rooted in ignorance. And notice, according to verse 3, Paul says that not only were they ignorant of the righteousness of God and they seek to establish their own righteousness, but they also did not submit. They were unwilling to submit to Christ. They had the right information about Jesus, well, most of it, much of it, but they didn't submit to him. Demons have better theology than humans, and yet demons don't worship God. So the Jews may have had zeal, and they may continue to have zeal, but the Jew who's not confessed Christ is spiritually blind and incorrigibly stubborn. And Paul says they're seeking a righteousness, as we'll see in the next section, that's based on the law, but it's not based on faith. Now, before we look at that section, we need to spend a, just a few moments unpacking verse 4. Verse 4 has caused much confusion. Look with me at verse 4. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, you may be tempted to read that and think, 
Okay, what Paul means is that there was a time that you could be justified by the law. But when Christ came, well, that period of time ended or that period of time terminated. Uh, But we already know from Romans 4 that's not the case. So when Paul says Christ is the end of the law, he doesn't mean that the law was terminated and there was a time we could be made righteous by the law. The law has never been a means of righteousness. In fact, we've already learned this in Romans 4 where Paul says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, well, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law, what does the law do? It brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression, and that's why it depends on faith. The purpose of the Mosaic law is to reveal sin, not to impart righteousness. It was to bring conviction and condemnation, not to bring justification. So when Paul here in verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, you might want to circle that word end because what he means here is not termination, like you've come to the end of your job here, mister, you're fired. That's the end of you here. No, that's not how he means it. What he means is the goal. Christ is the goal. Christ is the destination, the end result to which God's law had always pointed. Uh, It's the same word, end here, is the same word used by Paul in 1 Timothy 1.5 when he told Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Would that more ministers had that aim, right? The aim, the end result, the goal of our charge. And so the destination, the goal, the aim of the law had always been to point us like a tutor, like a billboard, to faith in Christ so that our righteousness would be imputed to us by faith, by believing in Jesus. Not that we would try to conjure up our works and perfectly fulfill the law and, okay, that's the means of righteousness. Uh, And so let's look at this second section and see the importance of faith. And look at verse 5. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, we begin another series of quotes from the Old Testament by Paul, and I want to make sure we look at all of these. He quotes here Leviticus 18.5. I want you to jot these down, and we'll look them up later. We'll look them up now, but you can also look them up later. We need to be a Berean. We need to check and confirm what we're being taught, that what you're being taught from the Bible is actually biblical. Um, So, I would encourage you to do that, to check out what's being taught and to confirm it from the scriptures. We don't have to sit under sermons with suspicion, but with certainty. Uh, So what does Leviticus 18.5 say? You can look in your Bibles or look on the screen. It says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. Now, the reason Paul quotes the law of Moses here is to make a few points. First of all, I think it's absolutely brilliant that he doesn't use his own logic or his own conjecture, but he uses the words of the law itself to prove his point. And and so basically in doing this, he's kind of leaning over to the person saying, oh, wait, you want to trust in the law to make you righteous? Okay, great. Well, let's hear from the law itself about how impossible that is. And so the verse here in Leviticus 18 may have been a proof text 
for the legalistic, self-righteous Jews to take to the bank. In effect, saying, hey, look, God requires us to live by good works. It's right there in, in the ink. And, and to be sure, the emphasis in the Mosaic Covenant was do, do, do. If you want to live and not die, do these things. Keep these statutes. Follow these rules. You will enjoy covenantal blessings if you stay within these boundaries. But see, Jews began to attempt to sever all of the law of God from the undergirded promises to Abraham. And just let's just do these things perfectly. Being severed from how they're rooted ultimately in God's relationship with Israel, who wanted to be a father to a fatherless people. He wanted to be a God of promise. And so we've already learned in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what Paul is saying here is like a righteousness achieved by law is doomed to start. It's doomed to start. Man is already condemned. We are all under sin. So the law doesn't impart righteousness, but what does it do? It, like a mirror, it reveals. It defines sin. And because of that, it condemns us. So Paul had learned earlier the folly and the inadequacy of trying to keep the law or to seek a righteousness under the law. And he shares his insights in Philippians 3. You guys can read that later. But, but remember where Paul said, whatever gain I had in all these things, I counted as loss. Remember he said, I, I don't want a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And if anyone understood these things, it was Paul. So notice the contrast that he makes in verse 6. Again, he's quoting the law now again. Okay, that's one way of doing it. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, and then he gives a series of quotes. Notice that there's some parentheses here. So first he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. But what does it say? What does the scripture say? The law says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, okay, we come to some passage of scripture a little bit more tricky. Sometimes you're eating a good meal, you need to chew a little bit longer. Okay, so we, we need to kind of focus for a minute. So if you didn't have your coffee, I don't know what to do. Just wake up. Okay, so Paul quotes here Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. Jot those down. Here it is on the screen. You're going to see how closely he quotes this. So here it is in Deuteronomy. For this commandment I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. All right, focus here. It's going to take a little bit of attention. This is a quote of a sermon that Moses preached at Moab towards the end of his life. In fact, he was 120 years old. He would not be crossing over the Jordan with God's people. And he was telling them in Deuteronomy 30, listen, the law is not too high to understand, nor is it too deep for you to comprehend. You don't need a super spiritual person to ascend to heaven or to go out into the sea, which could have been synonymous for Sheol, to cross over into death. You don't need someone to, to go up to heaven or to go down and come back from the dead and, and enable you to keep the law. 
It's right there. The law is right there in your mouth. It's right there in your heart. Now, listen, Moses wasn't saying that with fingers crossed behind his back. Like, yeah, I'm kind of telling you this, but I, I know the truth. No, the reality was, even as he's telling them, listen, this isn't too hard for you to grasp, and it's right there in front of you. The reality was the people were not going to obey. The people were not going to submit. You and I know this. Whenever there's a rule given to us, we wonder what are the boundaries of that rule? So this morning, if I were to put wet paint as a sign on this wall, every single one of you would go, is it though? Is it still wet? Kind of not sure. And you would tempt the, the rule, right? Let's just make sure. So the sign, the rule, all it does is invoke in us, as Paul taught us in Romans 7, all that does is kind of provoke within us a desire to push the law a bit. And so they were not, in Deuteronomy, going to trust the God of the promise. They were not going to yield to him by faith and be justified. And so Paul is using this section of Deuteronomy brilliantly. Notice in these verses in Romans that he's revealing Christ. Okay? Check it out. He says, who will ascend to heaven? Do not say who will ascend to heaven. He's quoting Moses. And the Jew might ask, well, we, we need someone to go to heaven to make this possible. We need to, someone to go up to heaven and keep the law for us. Paul says that would be to bring Christ down, the one who came down from heaven. Uh, Neither should we ask, Paul says, who will descend into the abyss which is the same as going out in the sea. It means to cross from life to death. And so Moses is anticipating the Jews who think, listen, we need someone to cross over the threshold of death and empower us to keep the law. And here, Paul, notice he's revealing Christ again. He says that's to bring Christ up from the dead. And then he says, well, what does it say? Okay, Deuteronomy says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And then he reveals Christ again, saying that the word that is near you, that's in your mouth and in your heart, is the word that we preach to you. It's the word of faith proclaimed by the apostles, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's a lot to comprehend here for a minute, but do we grasp the power and persuasion of this argument? You see, the full meaning of Moses' original sermon is that the law points us ahead to someone who will both come down from heaven and rise again from the dead And ultimately, that good news will be preached to us and will be near to us, and we can receive that person by faith and be joined with him. Now, both the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus, both of these truths were stumbling blocks for the Jews. But they were communicated, not cryptically, but they were communicated in the law of Moses in the Old Testament, and they're quoted here by Paul to drive home his point. The gospel of Jesus was not intended to go in one ear and out the other, but to be received in the heart and confessed with the mouth. And so this is what Paul says is the word of faith that we proclaim. The law is a signpost. It it shows us one has come down from heaven and has risen from the dead to ultimately fulfill the law of God. Righteousness can't be sought by keeping these things but they point us ahead to someone who can and will. And so the righteousness of God has not been by law for a season and then, okay, Christ came. It's always been about faith. It's always been by faith. And you and I, like Paul, can place our faith in the tested stone of Zion. Now, let's look at this third section, Lord of all. Look at verse 9. He says, 
Because if you, and he's continuing this train of thought, so stay with that same train of thought from Deuteronomy. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You guys see the parallels? This is just amazing. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses states, hey, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And here Paul says, we must confess with our mouth. And we must believe in our hearts. Well, what is it that we are to confess? What are we to believe? Well, notice that he says, we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. Of course, the uh, early church lived in a culture that said Caesar is Lord. And as we opened in prayer this morning, we were reminded Caesar is now a salad <laughs> and Jesus is truly Lord. So the birth of Jesus in the city of David was announced to the shepherds in Luke 2.11, they said, remember, here is born to you this day, to you this day, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah and he's Lord. Jesus is Lord was the theological content of the church's profession of faith. Lord, he's Lord. That's an affirmation of his deity. He is Adonai. He is the sovereign, the master. He's the king. He's the ruler. Jesus is Lord. Jesus affirms his historical humanity. So we affirm, we declare Jesus is, you could say, my Lord. But even if today you're like, well, he's not really my Lord. That's okay. He's still Lord. Jesus is still your Lord. He's Lord. And so to confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth in the early church essentially meant to be baptized. When you were baptized, you were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you were publicly professing, confessing, Hey, I belong to Christ now. I'm born again into, uh, into Christ. Now, simultaneously, Paul says that we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. So we simultaneously believe in Christ's resurrection. We know Christ is crowned the Son of God in power through his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. And so to confess out loud, to communicate through baptism, through preaching and proclaiming the gospel to confess. No, Jesus is Lord. I confess that with my lips and I believe in his resurrection uh, in my heart. Those are essentially the same thing. So like, don't separate the two. Well, I confess with my mouth, but I didn't really believe in my heart. No, these are two, they're not two different coins. They're two, two different sides of the same coin. So the scriptures assume if someone is saved, they're going to make a public confession of their faith. And if you make a public confession of your faith, uh, then you have believed in the heart. And so Paul is making the point, faith in and confession of the gospel leads to justification and salvation. Now, if you misread the law, so if you misread the law, you may come to think righteousness comes from keeping the law. But if you read it rightly, you understand no, the law is good. The law is just, and the law is temporal. We learned that from Galatians. It was, an, it was kind of an intermediate moment. It was added after the promise to Abraham. It was added because of transgressions. But true righteousness was only and has only ever been attainable by faith. So Paul says we must believe. We must place our faith in the resurrection hope of Christ. Christopher Ashe says, only some 
will have the religious privilege, the Bible knowledge, the moral responsibility to make a shot at keeping the works of the law. If acceptance with God depended on these things, imagine if it did, then Christianity would always be some kind of elite religion. But because it comes down by a word of grace, it is for all sinners without distinction. So Paul begins to quote, starting in verse 11, a couple more verses. So I want you to jot these down. First, uh, verse 11, he says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Um, I want you guys to jot this down. We learned this last week, but Isaiah 28, verse 16. We looked, this, uh, looked at this last week. The stone in Zion, the stone which we build our lives upon, is also a stumbling stone. And for the Jews, it's something that they stumbled over. But now, he quotes this again, but now he draws his focus on the last phrase of that section in Isaiah, where he says, whoever believes, but here he says, everyone who believes. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he says in verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Okay, we do know there's a distinction ethnically. We're talking salvation. Paul does the same argument in Galatians 3. He says there's no male nor female, Jew nor Greek. That doesn't mean that we don't still exist as male and female. He's saying in regards to salvation, we're all level at the cross. And so here he says, yeah, there may be Jew ethnically, Greek ethnically, but ultimately there's no distinction in our salvation because he's not just Lord of the Jew and, well, I guess I'll be Lord of the Gentile. No, he's Lord of all. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, he quotes now Joel 2.32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice these alls. Uh, earlier in Romans, we were discouraged when we heard the negative all. The negative all is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look at the positive all. He is Lord of all. Whether men and women will bow the knee before they breathe their last breath and confess Christ as Lord, we know from Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so here, Paul in verse 13 quotes Joel 2.32, and I'll put that on the screen. Good job. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel is picturing a future moment uh, when God will ultimately be glorified. And so Christ is the stone, the stone in Zion. And those who call out to him by faith may enter heaven, so to speak, believing that they may go to heaven. So I exercised my faith. I exercised my voice. And so I chose Jesus. I received Jesus. Some people have that theology. I chose Jesus. They even make songs about it. Uh, I, I found Jesus. I picked him. I'm amazing because I was looking at all these different religions and I decided Jesus is the man. I'm going to pick him because he's the best. And yet, when they, so to speak, come to heaven, enter glory, they learn all along, wait, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. But wait, didn't, wait, I, I was there in the Bible study. Didn't I call on the name of the Lord? And I would say, yes, all who are the called of God will call on God. So listen, this is not the frozen chosen. By the way, that's, that's sometimes described of the early service here because it's freezing in here. <laughs> the frozen chosen. Okay, 
No, I don't like that phrase because that implies I just am locked and loaded and I don't have to do anything. I just kind of lay back with no responsibility. I hate that phrase. I like to say, and maybe we can coin this, I'm the enthralled who's called. <laughs> like we are those who are taken up with the awe and wonder at our salvation and our response to this heavenly calling is to call upon the name of Yahweh. We call upon him for salvation, hope, and we do it by faith. So what a mystery that in the end, God would bestow his riches even on the Gentiles, even on sinners like you and me. This is a glorious gospel, and this should not invoke, like we've said before, anger, disappointment, debate. This should invoke worship. I can't believe I am chosen. I can't believe I'm called, and yet I call upon the name of the Lord. Now listen, as we apply these verses today, I want to emphasize three things. Uh, know, receive, and confess. And that's really the title of the sermon today, that we would know, that we would receive, and that we would confess. So first, know. Know the true gospel. Listen, church, there's only one gospel. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're going to learn this as we, as if you take advantage of the opportunity to read through the five uh, this month, we go into these different realities. The gospel has never changed. It's grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And you cannot be made righteous by works of the law, but only through faith in Christ. And this was not an issue only in Paul's day with the Jews seeking a works-based righteousness through the law. No, today we have to cut through a myriad of false gospels which seek to lure us away from the power of Christ's finished work of atonement on our behalf. And we have time. I want to spend just a minute on this. There are five false gospels I want to expose this morning. So if you're taking notes, jot these down. Number one is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says faith in Jesus equals blessing. And so what am I saved from? I'm saved from poverty. I'm saved from trouble. Now, earlier in verse 8, when we read Paul's phrase, word of faith, I know some of you had acid reflux come up, didn't you? You heard word of faith, you're like, uh-oh, wait a minute. Is he going to start, you know, slaying people in the spirit? What is going on here? Well, you've heard the, the phrase word of faith often used by those who teach the false gospel of prosperity. And when they say that phrase, word of faith, what they mean is very different than what Paul means here. Paul is talking about gospel proclamation. The prosperity hacks mean word of faith is to craft your words with zealous spiritual intent and your words become incantations. So you frame the word Mercedes, Mercedes, and you just keep saying it over and over, and eventually you go out in the driveway, and there's a Mercedes, because God wants to bless you. He wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And yet, in the prosperity gospel, think about this, there's no space for suffering. There's no space for the torment, the agony, the humiliation, the torture of Calvary. What do we see in the scriptures? We see a savior who first suffered and died. We see the apostles with that message who suffered and died. And so following Jesus doesn't save us from poverty or trouble. Actually, it often increases the two. It actually produces suffering. So we reject the prosperity gospel. It is no gospel at all. Secondly, the therapeutic gospel. This gospel says faith in Jesus equals self-improvement. And so I'm saved from my anxiety and I'm saved from my fear. Now, this is very prominent 
even in our community. You've sat through the sermons. You've sung the worship songs. It's all about me. Jesus knocks down my giants. Jesus brings me through the storm. Jesus calls me out of the tomb. Jesus wins my battles. Jesus crashes my Jericho walls down. Jesus achieves or helps, no, he helps me achieve the dream that I have within me. And see what's happening here? Rather than showing me the wondrous gospel of who Christ is, the focus is on how much potential I have. And Jesus is now the assist. He's the one who gives me the assist. He kind of is going to shoot the ball and then he's going to give me the layup and he gives me the assist. So what happens is Christ becomes a prop in the sermon who helps me to fulfill my inner dreams, my inner desires, my inner destiny. So when the word salvation is used in the therapeutic gospel, it means Jesus saves me from my anxiety and from my fear and from my failure and from my lack of potential, not from my sinful depravity. See the difference? We reject the therapeutic gospel as no gospel at all. Well, then there's the social gospel. And this gospel says, if you help the marginalized, that's justification. So I'm saved from selfishness and injustice. So they would argue in this gospel, you have to look at the power struggles in the world. You have to see how privileged you are or disadvantaged you are. And everything is filtered through race or class. If I do my part and listen and help the underprivileged, then I'm right with God and I'm right with the world. And so I can be saved from my selfishness or I can help save others from injustice by lending a helping hand. 40 years ago, that meant putting water wells into places that didn't have water. Today, it means much more uh, and also much less. And so we reject the social gospel as no gospel at all. Then there's the moralistic gospel. And this gospel says your, and this is kind of what Paul's been getting at, your good works and your effort will lead to God's grace. And so I'm saved from my mistakes. So I like to say this, Jesus doesn't save me from sin, but from sins. So we kind of zoom in the work of Christ a little too much. So Jesus died to give me a second chance and help me get better. So when I hear him at the cross, I don't hear done, I hear do. I don't hear it is finished, I hear get to work. And so I'm constantly working to be a better version of myself, and as long as I'm winning, well, then God will give me his grace. But Lord forbid I fail or I fall and I get tempted to eat that donut. And if I do, then all of the grace of God evaporates from my life and now it crashes down and I've got to try better and do much better next time. We reject that. We reject the moralistic gospel that says you must earn grace by being a good Christian boy or girl. We reject that as no gospel at all. Well, finally, maybe putting all of these together, we have what I call the American gospel. And there is a series of movies, of documentaries. I really encourage you to go and download, purchase them, watch them, the American gospel. Uh, they mean a lot broader term, but I want to zoom in in a little bit. How I would uh, determine or define the American gospel is kindness, tolerance, and sincerity equals God's favor or just favor. And I'm saved from bigotry and rudeness. So the American gospel says, just be a good person, and one day you'll be justified by death. God blesses the tolerant, he blesses the loving, he blesses the sincere, and so salvation means you'll be set free from the evils of bigotry, the evils of rudeness, because after all, no child molester, no rapist, Hitler, no, no murderer or bully is ever going to go to heaven. Uh, 
But we know the gospel is not that God saves good people. The gospel is, as one person said, the scandalous news that God saves sinners because there are no good people. There are only evil people who reject Christ and who accept the gospel. So the problem with all of these, we reject the American gospel as no gospel at all. And the problem with these is that there's a tiny, just a tiny fraction of truth in each one. Let me put them up on the screen again. I mean, look at this again. Does Jesus sometimes save us from trouble? Yes. Does Jesus additionally save us from anxiety or fear? Yes, often. Does Jesus help us care for others and fight for biblical justice? Well, I sure hope so. Does grace cover our sins and our mistakes? Amen. All right, does the gospel cause us by the Spirit to bear the fruit of kindness towards people different than us? Absolutely. But each of these by themselves truncate the true gospel in preference for something that's man-made, that's ineffectual, and that's limp. Church, any gospel that is not grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by definition is no gospel at all. You know this from Galatians 1. Paul said, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him go to hell. That's how strong Paul feels about a false gospel. Church, the gospel is the good news that the final and full enjoyment of the glory of God is only found in the person and work of Jesus. Our good and sovereign, eternal God, he made all things for his glory and in his goodness, he also created us, man in his image and in his likeness. But through our rebellion, our foolishness, our sin, man fell and we were separated from God forever. But in his everlasting love, God prepared his own son as the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus came and took on our humanity and he lived the life we should live, fulfilling the law perfectly and he died the death that we deserved, suffering the wrath of God, but overcoming death, overcoming hell, overcoming the grave in our place. And through repentance and faith, you and I, all who believe will be saved and will be reconciled with a holy father once and for all so that we can know him, love him, and serve him forever for his glory, for our joy. This is the good news. This is the glorious good news. There's only one gospel, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we'll move a little faster. I want to encourage you to receive. Look to receive, not achieve. David Gusick said, friends, do you see what the grace of God does? Do you see what faith does? It takes it totally out of the realm of earning and deserving, and it puts it within the realm of believing and receiving. If you're an unbeliever here today, you must understand salvation is all of God. It does not take your sincerity or your good works into account. Every religion has some metric of achievement in order to escape some sort of plight in the world. And only the gospel of Christ says, repent, trust, and receive. So it isn't about what you do for Christ. It's about what's been done for you by Christ. If you're a believer here today, uh, this means continuing to look to Christ in our justification as the one who finished the work, but also to the Spirit as the one who helps us in our sanctification as we yield to his ongoing work in our lives. Some have argued, well, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. Uh, and they would say, you're not saved until each and every area of your life is totally submitted to Jesus. And I think we have to be careful with that lingo. I think there's one worship song 
that absolutely causes every Christian to sin when they sing it. Uh, it's the song you've sung it, we've sung it, I Surrender All. And just think about it, this song causes every Christian to lie. Because here's the lyrics. All to Jesus I surrender. <laughs> All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence I daily live. I surrender all. And we even repeat it. I surrender all. We're kind of telling ourselves, I'm surrendering all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. Now, can we have a, an honest moment here? All? Really? All? Okay. Mm, good for you. <laughs> Before Micah, we did sing that here. So. <laughs> so here's how I would sing it. Most to Jesus I surrender. Some to him I freely give. I will sometimes love and trust him. In his presence, I'll strive to live. But honestly, I'm still resisting his spirit. I need to be convicted by his spirit more. I need to lay down my pride because my pride rises up and then I start getting uh, you know, lustful and angry and greedy and I choose my way and I desire to repent. I start getting proud of my obedience. My pride goes to my head and then I goes for destruction and then the whole cycle begins again. <laughs> that would be really hard to sing, by the way. Listen, Jesus is Lord, and so don't make the emphasis on how much you're surrendering to him. The emphasis is, do you simply trust him by faith? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you're saved. So rest in that. Now let's look to receive, not to achieve. And thirdly, finally, confess Jesus. Verse 12 says, the Lord bestows his riches on all who call on him. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So may we boldly confess boldly proclaim his mighty name, the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved. In, in what settings has God placed you, has the Spirit of God placed you to confess his name? Think of that. Think of your family, your coworkers, the people God has placed you right alongside to be an influencer for Christ. Don't shrink back from this, church. Confess Jesus. Lean forward and allow the gospel to be near to your heart, near to your mouth. Next week, we're going to see how important it is to have beautiful feet to take this good news to the ends of the earth and the importance of preaching the gospel boldly. And until then, may we pray, may we worship, may we be sent out into our community by and with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand together, and then we're going to close in song. Stand together, and let's pray. If you bow your heads with me this morning, we'll pray. Precious Jesus, You've given grace, glory, and honor to your Israel. And we want your name, Lord, on the gates of our house so that no one walks by and misses the fact that we love the Lord. It's our highest honor to have known whose we are and whom we serve in the gospel of your dear Son. So, Lord, how can we be ashamed of the name before which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth? Lord Jesus, not only write your name upon the gates of our house, but engrave it in the center of our heart and our affections, on our first, on our last, on our earliest, and on our latest thoughts. Let the good news be our joy to speak out of the abundance of our heart as we consider you and your great salvation. In all we say and all we do, let it be clear that we are in pursuit of the one whom our soul loves. Lord, we pray that everything in this life would say, whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon earth I desire besides you. 
Though my heart and flesh fail, you are the strength of my heart and our portion forever. Lord, we love you, we worship you, and we thank you for saving us. We confess and believe today that you are Lord, that God raised you from the dead, and we proclaim your gospel until we have no breath left in our lungs. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.